Many of us will recognize the name Tom Brokaw, who was a TV journalist for many, many years and sat in our living rooms, it seemed, with us for the evening news. And uh, in 1984, Tom Brokaw says that he went to Normandy uh, to commemorate the 40th anniversary of D-Day. And he said on that trip, that as he walked up and down the beaches of Normandy with some of those um, retired, long since retired service men and women who had been part of that massive undertaking during World War II, that he was taken with their spirit. And he was taken with how incredibly uh, strong they still were, having gone through such immense difficulties early in their lives between the Great Depression for many of them and then World War II. But he just said that it, it made this profound impact on him. Later, 10 years later to be exact, Here's what he had to say. Ten years later, I returned to Normandy for the 50th anniversary of the invasion, and by then I had come to understand what this generation of Americans meant to history. It is, I believe, the greatest generation any society has ever produced. Some of you may have been part of that or have a family member who was part of that. You recognize something of the greatness of that particular generation. And as, as we come to, to just kind of review what he said and what was behind what he said, we probably should pause long enough to ask the question, even if we may not want to agree that that's the greatest generation, we always like ours better, we still would have a great argument on our hands to say that there was some greater than that one. I, th I think we should probably ask the question, what was it that made them great? A lot of answers have been given to that through the years. The one that seems to rise to the surface the best and the most is, and I quote, the indomitable American spirit, end quote, that they portrayed. On this Independence Day weekend, I suggest that we should ask this question. Now, I don't want you to be defensive. I think good questions, if they're asked in the right spirit and if they're intended to get the right kind of searching for good answers, a great question moves us to greatness. And so here's the question that I think that we should uh, entertain this Independence Day weekend, and that is, is America great? I'm going to suggest to you for over 60 years now, 61 plus to be exact, I have lived in America and have a strong conviction that America is great. I've been to a lot of other places in this world. I don't want to live anywhere else but here. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I'm not suggesting that we're not great, but I, I think we should ask the question, are we still great? Where would we go to answer that? How do you measure greatness when it comes to a nation? We could go, for instance, to the words of that song by Francis Scott Key that begins this way, Oh, say, can you see? We consider the circumstances under which those words were written. We go back to the Revolutionary War. We could go before that. And as those first settlers, immigrants, came to our shores, what was it 
that they brought with them that moved this nation to greatness. So we could look at some of those kind of songs, many of which we've sung today or listened to today. If we want to try to answer the question, is America still great, perhaps we could go to some of our great poets of American history. Emerson, for instance, in his poem, A Nation's Strength, says this, and I'll just read this because you can tell by looking at me, I'm not a poetry-quoting kind of guy. What makes a nation's pillars high and its foundations strong? What makes it mighty to defy the foes that round it throng? It is not gold. Is it the sword? And is it pride? Not gold, but only men can make a, goal, a, a people great and strong. Men who for truth and honor's sake stand fast and suffer long. Brave men who work while others sleep, who dare while others fly. They gild a nation's pillars deep and lift them to the sky. Is Emerson right? Is the greatness of our country the people? Perhaps we go to Walt Whitman, Walt Whitman, another one of our great voices through the years in his poem, I Hear America Singing. He gives us his viewpoint when he says, I hear America singing the varied carols I hear, those of mechanics and each one singing as it should be, blithe and strong. The carpenter singing his as he measures his plank or beam, the mason singing as he makes ready for work or leaves off work. Is Whitman right? Is it the American worker that makes us great? How do you measure greatness? I suggest to you that that question has to be answered. If as a nation we continue to intend to be great, we have to find a good answer on how to measure greatness. I dropped this in our laps today. As people of the cross, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, how do we measure greatness? What is the word for us today on our part in the greatness of America and either keeping it that way or maybe coming to the end at some point, somewhere out there, looking backwards we never want to say, if only we had done this. Our text today is Proverbs chapter 14. If you have a Bible, there's one in the pew there. If you don't have a Bible, the ones that are in the pew are welcome to you, and you can take one with you. If you bumble up seven or eight of them, then that's okay too, but uh, they're there for you. But Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, simply reads this way, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach. To any people. And what we have in this is we have something of God's standard for what makes a people great. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any person. First of all, we understand that there's a contrast that's being made here. Actually, there's two contrasts that are being made. The first part of both of those statements, there's two parts to that verse, and the first part of both of those statements contrast one another. One of them is the word righteousness, and the other one is the word sin. So before we get to the second one, let's just deal with that one very quickly. 
in case righteousness is not one of the words that you use on a regular basis, let me give you the biblical definition. Well, so this is not a definition. This is Roe Trammell's easy word for the day. If you want to know what righteousness means, it just simply means right. But it's right from God's perspective, nobody else's. So I don't get to decide for myself what looks like it ought to be right and say, okay, that's right. If it doesn't match up with what God says is right, then it's not righteousness. It's pretty simple, really. God looks at it and says, that's right. We should know God's standard is pretty high when it comes to righteousness. Standard is measured against his character. And so, in other words, if we want to be righteous, if we want to be right, then that means we pattern ourselves after the character of God. What he does is right and righteous. What we must do then is mirror that in our everyday lives. Pretty simple. Sin, on the other hand, the back part of this verse, the first comparison that we draw, sin, let me make this one easy, is not right. If God looks at it and says, that's right, that's righteous, then sin is anything that is not righteous. So he's contrasting those two. This, this two-half verse begins with this contrast between what God says is right and what God says is not right. That's the first part. The second comparison is between exalts, righteousness exalts a nation. It simply means to lift high, to elevate in the back half. But sin, okay, so the best way for us to pull that word into modern-day English is the word disgrace. Righteousness lifts up a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Let me see if I can draw that distinction for us. Before I moved here, my wife Teresa and I lived in Lumberton, Texas. You get extra points on today's quiz if you know exactly where Lumberton is. Most of us don't. It's a little... Uh, village, small town, uh, just north of Beaumont, towards way over on the east side of Texas, almost into Louisiana. We were so close to living in Louisiana that a lot of Louisiana people called Lumberton home. We were an hour and 30 minutes from Minute Maid Park in Houston. If you don't know Minute Maid Park, that means you're probably not an Astros fan, which means we'll have a moment of silence for you for just a moment. We lived in Lumberton long enough to have been in that stretch where the Houston Astros were absolutely the worst team in baseball. They were so bad. We had some men in our church who worked for companies that had different uh, seat, uh, you know, season tickets in various places, some boxes and some, you know, I, I got to see a, an Astros game sitting eight rows up from right behind home plate. It's a great way to watch baseball. But the reason I got that ticket is because the Houston Astros were terrible. Nobody wanted even free tickets to the Houston Astros in those days. Lost over 100 games, at least one of those years, I think several of those years. And so you can imagine what it was like. Teresa and I, now I, I have a really good friend in our church who hates the Astros, and uh, if I don't get anything else done before I die, I'm going to try to get him to an Astros game. So you can imagine our thrill when right after we moved to El Paso, the Astros made this march through the playoffs. 
And finally, in the fall of 2017, Teresa and I, would, we, we were working hard those days, long hours, and we'd get back to where we were staying, uh, and, and we would turn on the television and get to watch the Houston Astros as they whipped up on whoever it was they were playing. I don't remember, some second-rate team, I know that. And they won the World Series. In Major League Baseball, winning the World Series is as exalted as you get. But it wasn't all that long later that those same Astros modeled the backside of this verse. But sin is a disgrace to any people, including the Houston Astros, when they were discovered to have been cheating. That's a word my friend uses to win that pennant. You see how quickly we move from elevated to disgraceful. Clearly, Solomon, this is a section of the Proverbs that refers to some either what Solomon wrote or what Solomon taught, but it models for us this truth that just because we begin well, just because we reach the heights, doesn't mean that we will be there forever. So it begs the question for us today, this one verse, is America still great? And if so, how do we measure that? So what I want to do is I want to use Solomon's Israel when he was the king of Israel. I want to use that for a few moments now to highlight just how slippery this can be for us. I use Solomon, first of all, because as I said, this proverb comes either directly or indirectly from him. And so, secondly, I use this because he epitomizes for us what it means to be elevated and exalted, and then before it's all said and done, to be disgraceful. Solomon's dad was King David. M many would say the greatest, I, I, I think most of us would say, the greatest king that Israel had until Jesus showed up. But in that, King Solomon inherited this, this kingdom that his father had been able to kind of pull together. And it was these 12 tribes before that, and they were kind of separated. But David pulled them together in a lot of different ways. They had, he moved towards Jerusalem as a center of worship. He did a lot of things for them. And so Solomon pulled all this together, the wisest man who ever lived, according to Scripture. And we find Solomon as he takes all of that, and it begins to fall apart. Solomon himself begins to fall apart. And this guy who had been modeling for his people what it meant to be God's anointed king began to do things that God would have nothing to do with. And so his, his kingdom became fractured. And not long after Solomon passed off the scene, his sons began to fight over it and they split the kingdom. And so there was one in the north and there was one in the south and these people were regional in the way they banded together. And then on top of that, the one in the north said, you know what, we don't want to go to Jerusalem and worship with those people down there. We don't even like them anyway. Well, they didn't say it that way, but that's kind of what they meant. We don't want to go down there. Let's just have our own place of worship up here in the north. And so they established that. And, and then in that moment, that series of choices, the people of God began this slide out of greatness from Solomon's riches, from Solomon's world influence. Suddenly we find a fractured people 
What I want to do is I want to take you from here over to the book of Amos. Because years later, after that breakup of the kingdom, soon after Solomon, years later, God sends his prophets. These are minor prophets. I, I like to call them little men with big voices. It's, it's not that they were minor people. It means that they didn't write as prolifically as, say, Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. And so those books that we have towards the back of our, new, uh, of our Old Testament are, are by these minor prophets. And I take you to the book of Amos, an 8th century prophet who actually would not have called himself a prophet. In fact, when we find him and his testimony, if you will, he says, I was not a prophet. I was a farmer and I was a rancher. In other words, I wasn't one of those religious guys up there. I was just going about my business with my family, trying to make a living. And here's a series of messages, four different truths I think that we should draw from. Before 722, when the northern kingdom was finally defeated and dispersed, or 586 later after Amos, and 586 when God took the southern kingdom and pushed them off into exile under the Babylonians. Before God judged them, he sent this prophet named Amos. Four messages. Here's the first one. Amos had the message of, well, you need to pay attention to your worship. In Amos chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, here's what he says. Let me, before I read that, though, let me make sure we get this. A Amos begins his whole book here with this, what, what I would call a circle of doom. And so Amos goes, and he's a prophet to Israel, the northern kingdom, but he begins his prophecy by highlighting the different nations that surrounded Israel. And so he just kind of makes this big pass around all of those nations around them, and he unloads on them. And the, the people of Israel would have loved this as they're listening to this prophet as he's pronouncing God's doom, God's judgment on all these other nations. The people of Israel would have been going, yeah, sick them. That's a Baylor statement, just in case you didn't know. Amos 2, verses 4 and 5, as he speaks to Judah, not Israel, the northern kingdom, but Judah, the southern. For, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. This prophet to the northern kingdom highlights the southern kingdom, and he says, because you have misplaced your worship, God's going to come after you. Not a happy message if you happen to live in the south. Message number one, pay attention to your worship. Message number two is pay attention to the way you deal with other peoples. The next few verses now, he zeroes in on the northern kingdom. Verses six through eight, here's what he says, same chapter. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They, that they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. What we find him saying here is that you your worship has been so off that the way you treat people is unacceptable to God. 
Now, let me just pause, and let's make sure we're on the same page. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And this prophet of God has now identified the people of God and said they're getting it wrong. They're getting it wrong with the way they approach God, and they're getting it wrong with the way they treat people. Something has to give. So we go over to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and we see this a little bit further. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Let me just stop for a minute. I love this part. He's referring to these fattened cows in the high country where, where grass is plentiful. That's something in modern-day Israel. You, know, you can go to places in the southern part of Israel. They don't even know what grass looks like there, kind of like living in El Paso. But actually, Amos is using the cows of Bashan as a metaphor for the rich women of Israel. So let's see what he has to say. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast into Harmon, declares the Lord." Two messages thus far. Pay attention to your worship and pay attention to how you treat people. Under God, hear me very carefully now. Under God, if the church gets social justice wrong, how will anybody get it right? No amens to that. Let's move on. Amos chapter 6 we find the third message, and that is that judgment will come. By the way, I hope you buckled up for this today. This is a rough road that Amos pulls us down. Amos 6, verses 4 and following says this, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch yourselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music. Who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Amos is pulling no punches. Our worship must be right. Our treating of people must be right. And if we continue to get those wrong, he says... God's judgment will come. How do you measure greatness of a nation? We could go to our poets. We could go to our hymn writers. But we should go to God. Because if America is anything, it's his, not ours. Let me just summarize all of this with what we've read in that first verse in Proverbs. Failure, that is sin. In light of righteousness, 
which is living rightly, failure to live rightly brings disgrace for a people. It's a tough message. And with that, let me draw a couple of applications and we'll be done. Could it be that our nation is slipping? I saw a news report this morning of a man who just turned 100 years old, one of the, if not the oldest, one of the oldest survivors of World War II. You go find that and read what he had to say. It was not necessarily complimentary. It was very patriotic, but not necessarily very complimentary of where we are as a nation today. I don't, I don't want you to get the wrong idea of what I'm doing here today. I'm deeply patriotic. I, 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 I'm the guy that cries at the national anthem whenever I hear it. I have incredible respect for my own family members who served in Vietnam and all of my friends through the years who have served in other theaters of war. Those of you who have given your life in service to our country for many years, some of you long enough to even retire, either being commanded by or commanding people, I have great respect for America the Great. But if we fall asleep at the switch, this could be trouble for America the Great. We measure greatness not by the workers of our country and not by the songs that we sing. We measure greatness, as God's people at least, by what God says is the measurement. Righteousness exalts a nation. So could it be that our nation is slipping a little? Does the word righteousness define us and describe us as a people? Are we rightly related with God? Are we rightly treating other people? Or are we destined, I want you to hear me very carefully now, the whole point of the message comes out at this juncture. Are we destined to be like every other great nation in history? We put terms on those great nations like empires. Consider the Greeks. Consider the Roman Empire. It moved the bubble of history further, each, each of those, with what they did and what they had to contribute. Think about the Ottoman Empire. I, a number of years ago, I had the chance to go to Turkey, and our tour guide said, wherever else we go, we're going to make sure that you go to what was the seat, the capital of the Ottoman Empire, and we took tours of their castles. Let me tell you how great America is. Most of you live in houses that put that thing to shame. America's incredibly great, historically speaking. Every one of those great empires, British Empire, every great empire of history had a final generation. How do we avoid being the final generation of a great nation called America? How do we do that? Righteousness exalts a nation. If God, hear me carefully, if God doesn't hold America accountable 
for where we have sinned in those two places we've been talking about? If God does not hold America accountable for those, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. God's not in the habit of apologizing. We have to know that it is our generation. That's all we have. We can't go back and change anything about the generation that came before us. We can't even be sure that what we do is going to be carried on by the generation that comes after us. We can train up our children. We should do that. But you go 100 years from now, people will forget that you even lived. We can't control that. All we control is right now, right day, right today. So are we great? What is the measure of the greatness that we have as we step into this experiment in freedom called America? We could be like Chicken Little. We could just panic. Ah, we're all going to die. The sky is falling. We could give, give place to doom and gloom. We could blame it on other people. Our world's great at blaming. We could just sit back and complain. Or we could embrace hope. Let me say that again. We could just throw our hands up and go, well, you know, it was a good run. <laughs> or we could embrace hope. Hope, by the way, the biblical use of the term hope is not wishful thinking. That's how we tend to use hope here. I, I've said this several times with, with our church people, so if you're visiting with us today, let me just do this. I'm a diehard Cowboys fan, okay? I, I, that, it's a tough life. I was at a sandwich place not too long ago here in town, and a guy standing, came in, next, stood right next to me. I was wearing a Cowboys hat. Not a cowboy hat, but Cowboys hat. And the guy was staring at me. And so I roughed him up a little bit, and I said, no. So finally, I just kind of looked at him and was like, you know, he said, I'm a Giants fan. So I said, oh, man, I'm sorry to hear that. I said, it must be really tough being a Giants fan. <laughs> he said, it must be really tough being a Cowboys fan. And so together, we just cried. We just sat down right there and cried. <laughs> I'm a diehard Cowboys fan. We're one month away from training camp. And this is the time of the year that every Cowboys fan says, this is our year. <laughs> so we say, we hope this is the year. Okay? With Cowboys, that's wishful thinking. Wishful thinking. But biblical hope is on the far end of the spectrum away from wishful thinking. Biblical hope is grounded in the promise of God. And so when God says, this is how it is, this is how it will be, hope for us is a confident assurance that God's got this. So when I say our response to this question of measuring greatness and will America continue to be great in God's eyes, our answer must be hopeful. Is God finished with this experiment of freedom called America? 
I say no. That may be hopeful, wishful thinking, but I believe, and I'm going to close with this statement for you. Let let me go to uh, Amos chapter 9. This is the fourth of those messages. And the fourth message is there's a way out. Amos said to the southern and the northern kingdom, your worship's wrong, the way you treat people is wrong, judgment is coming, but the fourth message is there's a way out. Chapter 9 of Amos, verses 11 through 15. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hill. Okay, let me, we don't use the word wine in Baptist churches all that often anymore. This is a message of hope. This is a message of productivity for an agrarian culture. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. At the end of the day, if America is to continue to be great, we as Christian people must hold on to hope and make a difference in this country. I close with a quote from, well, actually it's attributed to Alexis de Tocqueville. I think history would say it's, it's an error attributed to Alexis de Tocqueville. But his point is valid. How do we measure greatness? How do we avoid being the last generation of America the great? Here's the quote. I sought for the greatness and genius of an American in her commodious harbors, in her ample rivers, and it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. In her democratic congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she's good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Who knows good better than those who have been redeemed by grace? So welcome to the new experiment. Under God, may we not be the last generation of America, the great. But for that to be true, we come back today to commit ourselves to influencing this nation to righteousness and grace. Let's pray. And as we pray, let me just 
make this as a point of invitation. In your life, God has a role. You may not have given him a role. You may not even want him to have a role. But God has a role in your life because he's God. And if you're here today and your life seems to be a mess, kind of out of sync, it's like you can't ever get ahead, you can't ever get it right, whether it's in relationships or any other part of your life, if God's not an active part of your life where you've invited him in, then it's just not going to go the way it could. And so Jesus Christ has paid the price for you to have a relationship with God that draws you into his grace and his goodness and the life that only he can give you. And if you don't have that life, that relationship, then this time of invitation is for you. We, we, we'll sing a little bit. We'll stand and we'll sing. I'll be down front. Edgardo's down here already. And if you want us to pray with you, we're not, we're not trying to you know, pull anything on you. It's, this is an opportunity for two people to have a discussion about what real life looks like. And God who overcomes our sin through the love that he showed us in Jesus Christ and that can be yours today. And if you don't understand that, but you want to, you know you need to, this invitation is for you. We invite you to come and visit with us. Won't embarrass you or anything like that. But maybe many of us here know what that means already, but we've kind of thrown up our hands. Maybe we haven't worked at, at the goodness of God in our society these days. Now's a good time for us to recommit ourselves under God to influence this nation towards goodness and greatness. And so, Father, we ask you now, have your way with us. Use this time for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, so Lord.